Welcome to podcast number 10 of Bass Talk with Hagen and Hayes. Today we're delighted to welcome the amazing and unique Gary Carr as our first guest star on Bass Talk. I first met Gary in Manchester when I was about 17 or 18 years old, so it's been a, a long time coming to your concerts, Gary. How old are you now? <laughs> 20. About <laughs> 22, I think. Yeah, I, I forget. It was a long time ago. I loved going up to Manchester. It was a lot of fun. And uh, there was always a great class to work with there. It was, it was amazing. It was, it was um, this was the, I think, late 1970s mm-hmm. when I, I first heard you and, and Harmon. And you, you did a, a very serious first half. And my teacher, Lawrence Gray, who knew you, and he said, yeah, the first half is always serious. I think you played Handel and, yeah, and all these things. Old, and then after, <laughs> after the interval, that's where Gary Carr really came into his own. And yeah. suddenly it was just like, uh, um, it, it, it just, everything just lit up. It was absolutely amazing. And it, it's never lost me. I have to say, I come away from your concerts so full of enthusiasm and energy. And I just think I can do anything. It's 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 amazing. So it's, so thank you very much for for your inspiration across the years, David. Yeah, you're think... too kind. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I I sort of patterned my my uh, recitals after the New York Philharmonic in the 1940s, and I don't know why they broke away from that. But uh, in the 40s, the Philharmonic always did uh, first half meat and potatoes. After that, then there was the soloist usually, and then they would always the end of the con- end the concert uh, with my great friend Wilfred Josephs, who called called it envoi, uh, mm-hmm. something that uh, made people smile and walk away feeling good, and uh, and that was essentially what they now called the pops concerts, right. which is really weird. So it was a great combination. And uh, now everything has got, you know, well, I think they're coming back to it again. But when I started doing that and adding humor, I was criticized quite a lot for that, even by my colleagues, because they wow. felt that I was doing an injustice to the base by, by adding humor to it. But, you know, I'm a funny guy. I mean, why not share? And besides, I'm playing ridiculous music. And why not enjoy the fact that it is ridiculous? I mean, you know, when... I, I got known for playing the Paganini quite a lot. And uh, when he performed that, he would have a stagehand come out on stage with a giant pair of scissors and cut three of the strings off his violin, leaving him with only one string. And that's how he used to perform it. I mean, if that isn't a circus act, what is? And if that didn't make people laugh, what did? So, you know, might as well have fun. So when people would criticize for, I I love the format of serious and then a little intermission and then really fun stuff. And the last piece being something that really has everyone leave the concert hall joyful and excited. How do you deal though, when they criticize that idea or anything, how would you handle that? Because it never seems to have gotten you down. You kept going and and it's just amazing. Well, I always felt that, um, well, first of all, I mean, I heard the criticism and all, um, but it's me and there's nothing I can do about it. That's the, that's my nature. And so I figured, well, you know, really it's not my problem, is it? It's really their problem. (laughs) If they can't deal with it, that's, you know, it's okay. I mean, I actually lost dates because of that. I, I was, uh, 
there there were places where I had uh, performed, and then there was a request to have me back, and the manager of that series said, "Absolutely not. We're not going to have a buffoon come back to us. Oh. He doesn't know. He doesn't know stage decorum." <laughs> oh my goodness! I think that you're one of the most fun and exciting performers, and and that's just such a gift, such a gift. And you've well, got thank. Thank well, you for have, that. <laughs> no, it's true. You have great personality. And I think that's what our instrument needed. Someone with obviously incredible technical prowess, tons of musicality and the ability to be so lyrical. And really, the first time I heard a recording of yours was the Spirit of Kuzovitsky recording. And I remember thinking, oh my God, the bass really can sing. It should be an extension of our voice. And this man has figured out how to do it. And, you know, well, it's just, it's incredible. Well, the voice was always my my, my inspiration. And um, in fact, I really wanted to be a singer. I did study singing when I was a very young child. And, uh, and I sang in choirs and every chance I had, I, I sang. And, um, and then I finally, I sang to the public. And I was, um, and after I finished, and, and while I was singing, Everybody cried, but the only problem is I was singing happy songs. Oh no! <laughs> so, so I decided, hmm, that I think there's a hit there. <laughs> so it's better. So I turned turned my bass. My bass became my voice, and actually, I identified with it all through my playing as my voice. Um, it's it's I I feel so much oneness with the instrument. And it, it breathes like a singer to me. And, uh, and that's the way, you know, I, I think the greatest joy I have in, in playing the bass is singing through the instrument, much more than the technique and everything. I just love to sing. I love melodies. Yeah. yeah. And I, I was lucky as a kid because I, I in growing up in Los Angeles, uh, I studied with Herman Reinshagen who was uh, uh, with the New York Philharmonic and, uh, and he moved out to Los Angeles, retired there, and then became um, the main teacher there. I mean, Charlie Mingus studied with him and all these jazzers and, and all the uh, Los Angeles Philharmonic people studied with him. And I mean, he was, he was quite, the, quite the amazing teacher. And when I started studying with him, it is, he was in, already in his late eighties and um, he had transcribed so much music. I mean, there were piles of it uh, that he wrote out by hand. And a lot of it was absolutely unadulterated schlock. <laughs> <laughs> and I had, uh, and because I was a quick, quick learn, he uh, gave me a new piece every week. So I had to learn a new piece every week. And these schlock pieces, I figured, you know, I didn't really know they were schlock at the time. I just thought um, I'm going to put my heart and soul into all of it. And, uh, and it was, I think, through playing schlock <laughs> that uh, I developed this um, lyrical approach to the instrument. So I, I was lucky to have all that music to begin with. And I, I think, you know, I mean, it's unfortunate. Everybody thinks they have to study the great masters at all, right away. But I, I think that there's a big advantage of studying pieces that are just basically lyr lyrical. Um, I mean, there's a lot of opera that's absolutely schlock, you know. <laughs> and uh, but I love it. I mean, everybody loves 
these melodies. And so why not play it on the bass? Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. One thing that inspired me, Gary, was that you uh, you commissioned so many pieces for bass. Um, it must be hundreds and hundreds now across the years. Do you remember the very first piece you commissioned? And do you have memories of of, of some of the, the happy commissions? Well, that, that was an amazing thing. I'm happy you asked that question because um, the first uh, piece that was actually written for me, I didn't commission. I didn't even know the composer. And uh, this was such a thrill um, because I had uh, produced my first recording uh, when I began my career. That was in the, you know, around 1962, I think it came out. And um, it was with a, a small company in New York called Golden Crest. And, uh, and they were basically um, a, a company that appealed primarily or, or you, their, their market was primarily the schools. And so uh, they did a lot of ed educational recordings. And, um, but they had uh, everybody playing and, um, and the, the owner of the company was a good friend of John Barrows, who was a great French horn, uh, unbelievable uh, French horn player, and, and uh, uh, I one of one of the greatest, really. And he uh, recorded for them, and he had a friend who had written music for him by the name of Alec Wilder, and Alec Wilder was probably best known at that time as uh, a pop composer he had written for Frank Sinatra and you know all the all the top pop sing jazz singers and um but he was also also loved to write classical music and and he was determined like Hindemith to write something for every single instrument and he told that to his very dear friend John Barrows and and uh Bear, and I had just made that recording. So Barrow said, you've got to listen to this. This is a bass, you know, why don't you write for that? And he did. And then he sent me the music and oh, I couldn't believe God. it. And I saw uh, on my first debut recital in New York town hall, um, I included the premiere of his sonata, the, the Alec Weiler sonata. What yeah. a compliment to have a complete stranger that you don't know, you've never met write a piece for yeah. you. Isn't that nice? I, I mean, that, that that's why I wanted to tell you the story because it was overwhelming. I mean, it was one of the most thrilling things that ever happened to me. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And then, and then um, and commissioning works were a big problem because here I am, I've already told you, I love lyrical music. I love melodies. <clears throat> and unfortunately my career started at a time when composers weren't writing melodies. I mean, it was the avant-garde movement um and, and it seeped into everybody um i mean i even uh, wanted uh, aaron copeland to write something for me and he was nearly destroyed by the avant-garde he told me that personally he said i just you know they think i'm an old fogey and they were making fun of him because he wrote tunes and uh so he so i i begged him i said well how about if you take one of your old pieces and gave it to me. So he, he gave me the, um, the violin sonata that he wrote. And, he, and we worked it together and made it for the bass. And it really sounds good on bass, actually. I and heard you play it, actually. Yeah, it's, it's got some nice tunes in it. Yeah, it's a great piece. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
I feel the same way. I would, I would rather play Nessendorma than something that's yeah. what my, my mom and dad who are both musicians would call it bleep bleep music. Um, you know, they, they grew up in that era and, and they respected it, but I just would love to, to play something you can sing. It's just yeah. fulfilling. I think. Yeah. Now, when you were younger, like a kid, like just starting out, did you enjoy practicing? Were you like rushing over to the base to do it? Did you have to be encouraged? What was that like? Um, well, I think like all kids, I had to be encouraged to some extent, but boy, was I ever lucky. My family um, came over in probably the 19, around the early decade of the, maybe the early two k. I'm not exactly sure when they came over from Russia to the United States. Was it like before and the Bolshevik revolution type? It was period? just after that. So okay. like 1913 or 1914, yeah. they came over. And uh, they brought with them um, a lot of their friends. They all came over together, a lot of the musicians. And in fact, yes. my grandfather signed the papers to bring Yasha Heifetz over. Oh, wow. Because he had already been, you know, established in New York. And, um, and one of the people that came over with him, uh, or actually he did a more circuitous, circuitous route, but he finally ended up in the United States, was a man named Yuda Demenstein, um, who is a bass player in Russia. As my, my grandfather actually studied the bass and the trumpet, oh. and he became, became better known as a trumpet player, but he did do bass work too. But uh, Yuda Demenstein lived across the street from me, mm. and he knew that I played the bass and and he liked what I was doing. And I'm only like nine years old. Right. And so every day I came home from school and every day Yuda Demenstein came over to my house and practiced with me. Oh, I mean, that is so know, great to have like a practice buddy. That's an incredible bass player already, you yeah. know? And uh, so at that's so I started that way, and I so and but then um, after he died, um, w one thing I I I had I I consider this probably maybe it's a gift, um, something that I didn't know was so unusual until I started teaching, but I'm one of those people to this day, I'm I'm a futurist. As soon as uh, during the day, I'm already making plans for tomorrow and next week. And I've always yeah. done that all my life. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. And when I practice, um, I practice very efficiently. And my mother, uh, and in those days, this was days of early days of TV. We were one of the first people on the block to have a television set. And they came in great big cabinets with the doors in the front that you had to open up. And my mother put a lock and key, like a chain and a lock over the thing. And until you did your hour, she would not unlock the TV. So I couldn't watch TV. So I had to practice by hour. That was my encouragement. And that works. But I, I cheated. I practiced 55 minutes. And my mother never really complained. I don't know if she ever really knew I was practicing. But those 55 minutes were really organized. There was never a moment of silence. And there was never a moment where I wasn't thinking about what I was doing and, uh, and, and following a, 
an agenda, a routine that I, I had already planned the day before. And as soon as I finished practicing, during the day, I would be thinking about what I'm going to do the next day. And uh, and that that was, I think it's, I think that was very motivating, actually, um, to make me actually want to practice yeah. because I had planned planned to, you know, I, I had a plan for what I wanted to do. So many of the students that I've had just go in the practice room and they all they do is repeat the same thing over and over and yes. without thinking and hoping that the bass is going to teach them how to play, you know? It's, oh, it's, it's true. Kind of I, I find with my teaching, I actually give each student a notebook and I organize exactly what they need to do for them. But then I, I hope that then they're learning how to, the plan, the plan is essential. I have a notebook on my own music stand. And at the end of the day, it's, did I get what I needed to accomplish done? Or do I push that into tomorrow? And everything should be organized and efficient. I say to my students, I want you to have a life. I want you to be able to put the base down and enjoy living but you have these things you've got to accomplish. So stay organized and be efficient. And sometimes I think they just like love a piece and they'll play through it a bunch of times, but they're not fixing it. So I try to help them with like silly phrases, like known tricky spots, find your KTSs and work on those first. <laughs> well, you know, and there, there's another thing about practicing that I've always believed. And uh, the bass is physically a difficult instrument to play. It's, it's tough on the body. And so these people who practice four or five hours or more a day are doing themselves a disservice. You don't really need, if you practice really well and efficiently, you don't need to practice that long. Yep. And, uh, and so I, I, I think, and also I was, um, I think a, a lot of my efficiency had to do with the fact that I'm basically lazy and I always find <laughs> the e easiest way to do everything. And these students who say, boy, I really, I'm sweating and, and I'm, boy, did I have a good workout today? Boy, I really practiced. And then I thought, huh? You know, I, yeah. I think um, if after you've practiced, you, you don't feel like you did anything, it's the best kind of practice you could do. Yeah. You know, if you, it should be, you practice to make it easy, not hard. And if you're, if you're struggling and you're working with the struggling all the time, then you're not, you're not being intelligent about it. You have to find a way to make it easy. Everything right. should be easy. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so should practicing should never be, you know, a, a physical challenge ever. Yeah. I agree. I say to my students, your brain should feel like a bowl of mashed potatoes, just completely yeah. by the end. Absolutely your body right. should be fine. Your body yeah. should be healthy and feeling great. You shouldn't feel physically exhausted. And yeah. I think we should be able to get six hours of practicing done in three hours or less. Yeah. Boy, I tell you that, you know, at my age, um, brain, everything having to do with the brain is a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> and I understand so that. So I've taken up uh, jazz piano. I've always wanted to, like, I, you know, I'm not a pianist at all. I've never, I hate the instrument. In fact, I mean, to me, I, I, when I sit at this mechanical, unfeeling, this, this instrument that gives you absolutely zero feedback like a, a bass does, it's, it's almost like playing a computer, you know? I mean, it's just, uh, I feel so disassociated from the actual instrument itself. But I love the harmonies. 
And so I practice every morning. I, I just finished practicing this morning and uh, before coming to the computer. And um, and I tell you, I mean, learn doing all this learning, all these chords and having to figure all these things out, I get so tired mentally. Yeah. It's really a challenge. It's a it's different a kind of thinking too than what totally we're accustomed different to. kind of thinking. Yeah. Yeah. But it's That's good. So cool good, that you're good doing for that. these old gray cells. <laughs> I think that's great. What what do you wish that people knew about you that people don't really know? I mean, we all know the great Gary Carr and master of the bass and has inspired so many and is responsible for so many of us playing the bass and so many transcriptions and compositions. But are there things that you're like, oh, but people don't know this about me? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what were you thinking about? <laughs> um, well, one one thing you know, I I I feel uh, really humbled when I'm around my colleagues, greatly humbled because um, first of all, I mean, there's so many great bass players that they've technically gone way beyond what I was able to do. Um, and that itself is incredibly humbling. But um, more than that, I have never been, um, I've never thought of myself at, with all these accolades that you've been giving me um, because I practice every day still. And, and the reason I practice every day is I'm really hoping to get better. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I think in the past year, I've made some improvements. <laughs> Um, it, and that really pleases me. Um, but I, I really, um, I must say that, uh, that to some extent I'm humiliated every day by this bass player on my shoulder who can play rings around me. And I'm always trying to try to be as, as close to what this wonderful player could do. Um, and it's it is humiliating because I I've never been able to reach it, and so um, I I feel uh, I'm still a student. Yeah. I'm still a student, basically a student, and uh, and I share so much of the, you know the what is it the the progress, the search, the agony. Of, of dealing with the instrument as all my colleagues do. So I, I feel very much in oneness and very humbled when I'm around all of them because they, they're doing so well. I the one thing that, I always yeah. said about you, Gary, is um, because of you, we are where we are today. You, you are the one who did all the hard work. You went out there and broke down all these barriers because nobody knew what the bass could do. Everyone thought it just sat in the orchestra playing the elephant or in jazz. And you came out and you really shook up the bass world. Did you know you were going to do that? <laughs> no, I didn't. Uh, well, you know, I, again, to go back to the melodious playing, uh, I, I love to play these melodies. And um, and I was uh, giving, a, a, I was on a, a student recital in Aspen, Colorado when I was 19, I think. And, uh, and Jenny Turrell, who became my mentor, uh, Jenny Turrell was this great opera singer from the Metropolitan Opera and wonderful recitalist. And she came to my 
recital, or I mean, the, she came to the student recital on which I played only a couple pieces and I don't remember what it was. And um, and then she invited me to dinner, which to me was, you know, one of the glorious moments of my life. I could believe Jenny Terrell's inviting me to dinner. And um, and she sat down at the piano and put some music down and she said, um, I'd like to sing some Russian Russian songs. And do you think you can uh, come up with a, an obligato? Well, you know, that's my background. So it was very easy for me to do that. And uh and we actually performed together quite a bit and and recorded. And um, she said, you know, I'm, I'm very close friends with Leonard Bernstein and I want him to hear you. He has to hear you. So she arranged this audition for me to play with, for Bernstein. And um, he had a TV program called Young People's Concerts, which at that time was watched by 7 million people around the world. And... Uh, so here I am in Carnegie Hall on stage alone and the only person in the in the entire hall watching me play listening to me play was Leonard Bernstein <laughs> and that was my audition and then he said I'm going to put you on on TV uh, you know I had I think I had one other experience playing with an orchestra before then um, oh there's a funny story I don't know if you want to hear this great funny story but um I, he wanted me to do something solemn and something um, fun, something more technical. Uh, not necessarily, I don't, I think I played it rather seriously then. In fact, I think you can find it on YouTube. Uh, so I played the Bloch Prayer and, um, and I got the uh, orchestration from uh, one of my coaches named uh, Alfredo Antonini, who was uh, Toscanini's uh, rival because Toscanini was NBC and uh, <laughs> Alfredo Antonini was CBS uh, Networks. Anyhow, uh, so he wrote this orchestration. So I had that for the player, prayer. And he said, do you have an orchestration for the Bosa's Fantasy? And I said, uh, oh yes, of course. Well, I had just failed a course in orchestration at Northwestern University. I didn't. I actually got a C, but the guy wanted to fail me, and the uh, dean said no because I skipped all the classes. Because, you know, he would say, um, you know, you have to know the range of an oboe and you have to know the range of a clarinet. Well, I lived in the orchestra. I played in a million orchestras when I was a kid, and I, uh, I didn't have to know what the limits were. I could hear it in my head. So I skipped a lot of. So I found his classes really boring, and. Um, so I, I lied to Bernstein and then I went home and wrote the orchestration. And he said, I, uh, he didn't know that I had written it. And he said, I'd just like to see it and, and see if it's okay. And so I submitted the score and he said, fine, we'll do it. <laughs> so I wrote my teacher at Northwestern University and I said, please tune in to <laughs> NBC, blah, 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 at such, on such or such a date. Uh, because the New York Philharmonic is premiering one of my orchestrations. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> excellent. <laughs> but anyhow, the reason I told you that whole story is because um, that started, I mean, what, you know, today you have, you have all the social net, uh, networking and, uh, but in, in those days, you know, TV was, was the, your only chance to really, 
if you could appear on TV, you could really make make a career. Sure. And and that really launched it for me. I mean, I, uh, until then, I really had no aspirations for being a soloist. But once once that happened with the New York Philharmonic, then all these uh, I got all these people wanting to me to come and play. So that's how it started. Yeah, yeah. that's that must have been an amazingly. Did you know like? going into that concert, how big this could be for you and the double bass and you and the double bass together? Or did it just seem like, oh, neat, this is going to be a fun moment? I think I was nervous as hell. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I, I think, I think, in fact, I think I wore rubber underwear just in case. <laughs> um, now, what, what would you do when you were nervous before performance? Because I think everyone gets nervous, right? And we try to pretend we're not going to, and we try to focus the, the adrenaline into something positive. But how did you cope with it? Because I think people would be amazed to hear that Gary Carr was ever nervous, you know, because of who you are. I have always been nervous before every single concert, every single one. I've just been a wreck before. And uh, in fact, um, and, and the reason is because, you know, I of the damn bass player on my shoulder. He's gonna yeah. make fun of me if I mess everything up, you know? Yeah. And I was always worried, I'm, am I gonna do well? Am, am I prepared enough? You know, and you know, all these things go through my mind. And um, there was a, a, a chap, a, a, a medical doctor who wanted to do some research on, um, he had done a, work, a lot of work with athletes and he wanted to see, well, what, what do musicians do? And um, and here I'm playing uh, a physically challenging instrument. So he figured, well, that's a good, you know, this 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 is a big, great guinea pig to try this experiment. So he hooked me up with these electronic things on my <clears throat> arm and chest and so on, basically to um, monitor my um, heart rate. Mm. And so I'm standing backstage, ready to go on. And it's just beating like crazy, you know, way, way up there. You know. And um, <clears throat> I walked out on stage and uh, I'm nervous as hell. And I put the bow on the string and draw sound and my heartbeat instantly goes from a high heartbeat, a, a fast heartbeat down to something between 55 and 60 beats per minute, wow. instantly. Wow. Yeah. And uh, the only explanation I have for that is that I love the bass so much. And I love that feeling of the bow drawing across the string. It's just for me, it's just, uh, you know, it's like eating chocolate. And it's, um, home. it's home. And as soon as I did this, I felt, well, I'm singing now. And I just, you know, uh, kind of went into my own bubble mm -hmm. and there I was I was just playing and, uh, and you're able to ignore that bass player on your shoulder while you're while you're in that moment pretty much yeah yeah that's great pretty much one time a workshop, um, and I talked about these two angels on either shoulder the good angel and the bad angel um, <laughs> and we, we always listen to the bad angel unfortunately because the good one gives us good advice 
but the bad one is louder. And someone drew a picture of me with two angels on my shoulders. <laughs> so I was standing there with a the bass and the two angels. Wow. But it's so true. It's so true. And it's it's difficult, isn't it, not to listen to the, the bad angel. It's so difficult because that's the one who shouts at you much more. But the, the one thing I and you've talked about, Gary, about your fantastic sound and singing on the bass. And and when did that sound come? Did it was it there almost from the start, or did you develop it or it was there from the start. Um, there, in those days, uh, we didn't have, when I began, there wasn't such a thing as a tape recorder. It was done with wire, uh, wire recorders. Wow. And uh, so they recorded me, I think, when I was nine years old, and the sound was there. It never That's changed. Amazing. That's and, and, yeah. And, and, and I think uh, the reason, and, and that, well, this is, uh, this, has certainly uh, influenced my teaching because, you know, I like to work with um, beginners, especially because from day one, I want them to like the sound they're making. That was because of me, you know, I, that's the way I approach the instrument. I love the sound of the bass. And of course I had Kusevitsky's recording to, to uh, uh, support that because mm -hmm. uh, he produced such a beautiful sound on the instrument. And uh, yeah, I wore that recording out. It was quite quite an influence on me. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. I always told uh, when I when I did uh, my first press conference in in Japan, uh, when I first went there in 1980, um, there were lots of I think were 90 90 different uh, magazines. There were you know they devoted a lot of lot to classical music in those days. And uh, so they were present at this press conference and they said, well, what attracted you to the base? And I said, well, chocolate, mm -hmm. I said. Mm -hmm. And they said, why chocolate? I said, because if, if, the, if chocolate could sing, it would sound like a double bass. And uh, it, if you try to describe chocolate, that's the way I think of the, of the bass sound. It's, it's dark, it's warm. Uh, you know, mellow, it, it, it's, it's sweet. I mean, all these wonderful uh, adjectives that describe chalk perfectly describe the bass. So for about 10 years, so all these magazines, 90 magazines all wrote this all over Japan. So whenever I played recitals, believe it or not, um, people would come and give me chocolate afterwards. And I usually had about I took to the hotel usually about eight to 10 pounds of chocolate a night. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was the greatest gift I ever got by playing. It's life being a musician, isn't it? It's, it really is. It's, it's, it's wonderful. Amazing. Yeah. So, and did you ever work with, with Bernstein after that? Did you ever think of asking him to write a piece for you? I did. I, I met with him while we became friends and uh, I did. I tried numerous times to get him to write a piece and he kept saying, yes, yes, I will. But, um, you know, one, one, you know, toward the end of his life and I kept prodding him to, to do this, he said, you know, one of my problems with composing, this is what he told me. He said, I have conducted uh, so much music um, and I have played on the piano. He was a really great pianist, played so much music on the piano 
that when I sit down to write, it's I can't think of anything original. All these, every time I write three notes, I think I'm writing notes that have already been written. And he said, it's really very hard to be original. Mm. And uh, so that was, you know, I, I don't know if he, at one point he stopped writing, but uh, it was difficult for him. That's such yeah. a shame for us, isn't it? That we yeah. didn't have a piece from Leonard Bernstein. Wouldn't, wouldn't that have been wonderful? Yeah. yeah, it would. And also you knew, knew Joe Horowitz, who was one of my teachers. The Royal Oh, College. he was? Yeah. And I, I, yeah, Joe was a great character. I, I loved him. And I kept asking him to write for bass. I think you did as well. Yeah. And he said he didn't think the bass was a solo instrument, so he wouldn't write anything. Yeah. And then he then he was in Stad. I, I went there every summer for the Menuhin Festival. Yeah. And uh, so he came there one time and then he heard me in recital. And I guess that changed his mind because um, afterwards he said, uh, can I do anything for you? And I said, yeah, write a piece. And he said, well, you know, you just played the um, Grieg Sonata. Why don't I turn that into a concerto? Yeah. And so he orchestrated it and uh and did a beautiful job i mean it's a wonderful orchestration he was a really great composer though it's yeah shame. what phenomenal yeah you hear his, his ballet music and, and lots of things and i said wow i i wish i could have persuaded i wish you could have persuaded him to write yeah. something for us yeah i wish i could have yeah that's that's the whole world, isn't it? And I, I studied with Bronwyn Nash, who's studied with you. Uh -huh. And she once said about composers, she said, opera is our problem. She said, every composer I've asked, would you write a piece of bass? I would like to, but I'm writing an opera. And opera has stopped us getting all these great pieces. Um, and that's interesting. I, I, I would, you know, uh, when, as a student at the Juilliard, um, I did uh, Hans Werner Henze came to uh, conduct our orchestra uh, in an opera that he wrote, uh, the Elegy for Young Lovers, it was called. Yeah. I don't know if it's uh, if it's ever been performed since then, but um, it's it's a, it is good. I'm happy to hear that because it is lyrical Hans Werner Hansa. It's so lyrical and so beautiful. And I thought, wow, now this, this guy should write for the bass. And so I... I uh, approached him about it, and he said, sure, I'll write you a piece. You get me the money, and I'll write for it. <laughs> so I went to um, the Rockefeller Foundation in New York, and I said, Hans Werner Hansen, the great Hans Werner Hansen, wants to write a piece for me. Do, would you, do you think you would uh, be able to handle the commission on this? And they agreed to do it. So that's how I got the piece. And that actually was a turning point in my career, too, because um, they said... Uh, the will give you the money for the commission, but you can no longer do orchestral work anymore. Um, you have to be you you have to uh, focus on solo playing um, because up to that time, you know, I was freelancing in New York like crazy. I was the first sub at the Metropolitan Opera, which was great fun because I didn't have to go to rehearsals, but I played all the all this wonderful music at the opera. Um, and um, so hence writes this piece for me the biggest disappointment of my life there's no tunes you know i mean not really all this the elegy of for young lovers wasn't pres present in this piece at all 
And I don't know what he was thinking about when he wrote, well, I know what he was thinking about, but I don't want to share that either. But yeah, um, yeah he, strange guy. He was a very strange guy, I thought. But anyhow, that was, it's disappointing. It doesn't really feature the bass in the way I wanted the bass featured. And are there any composers who turned you down? Oh, I don't, well, it's just say, saying absolutely no, I, I, I don't think so. I think uh, they always had excuses. <laughs> it was the, uh, I'm writing an opera. An opera. <laughs> Which they should have just taken an aria and given it to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the, you know, the problem of, of uh, I mean, money got involved and they usually got, uh, uh, if, they, if they wrote music, they usually had quite, a source, a wonderful source for commissioning and uh, paying for their time to write. And so you really couldn't go to a major composer unless you had that kind of financial backing behind you. Um, and um, and that was that was problematic because I didn't know all these these uh, foundations and I wasn't very good at uh, finding it and, and asking rich people to pay for something like that. So yeah. I was at a disadvantage. So I think that's a hard thing to do to just sort of ask people for money to, for commissions yeah, and whatnot. I, I can ask people for money to, to give to, uh, you know, like I've been on numerous uh, arts boards here sure, and, I, yeah. and I turned out to be a good fundraiser. But I never really ever asked people for money. I always found ways of, in fact, they would come to my house and I'd play recitals. There'd be like, you know, I could do like 30 people at a time. Mm -hmm. And um, and these organizations would invite people who they thought could be potential donors. And I said, the rule is that when, when these people come to the house, you do not ask for money. They all know why they're there. And uh, so one, one season, I remember we did a, a concert once a month for the opera here in Victoria, and we raised $700,000 without wow. asking, without asking for it. Wow. Now, I wish I could have done that <laughs> or <laughs> asking composers to write for me, but uh, right. so. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, for all the influence and the music that because of you now exists whether it's been composed or transcribed it's we're all forever indebted to even though you didn't feel comfortable asking for money for these things it happened it people wanted to write and transcribe for you it's amazing yeah. and well i was very lucky i mean wilford josephs wrote a, a wonderful concerto beautifully lyrical concerto but he had sources a lot of these composers have sources yeah so um I, th I I forget who it was that paid for it, but uh, I didn't Wolf have was a great pay. friend of mine as well towards the end of his life. Yeah. And I remember sitting down with him and he got a, a tape recorder of you playing his sonata, you and Harmon playing his sonata. And we sat there one Saturday afternoon at his kitchen table, just listening to your, your performance. And, and Wolf still had the manuscript there, so we we're reading the, the score. And uh, it, was, it was so funny. He said, I, I don't remember writing this at all. And afterwards he said, it's quite a good piece, isn't it? <laughs> it's, not so bad, Will. it's not so bad. 
Yes, I, I was I was so so pleased to get to know Wilf and get to know the bass music that you'd commissioned from him uh, towards the end of his life. And he again a great composer, and he always kept that last bit of humour right for the end, as you said. Yeah, and he was fantastic at that. He was yeah, so he was very jolly fellow. I loved him very much. He had many yeah. good stories. He was a good storyteller, good raconteur. I used to go to the pub with him when he, he lived in North London, the, the pub next door. And we just sit there and I just wouldn't say a word because it would just be one story, one yeah. joke after another. And he was just such fantastic company to be with. And he never changed. It was so, so nice. Yeah. He, I love being with him for the same reasons. Mm. Great fun. Yeah, he yeah. was. He was. Yeah. And did you did you think, or, or when you look back from your career now, are you quite astounded at what you've achieved and what you've done, and how things have changed because of you? We, I, you know, <laughs> that's an interesting question. Um, you know, Harmon and I were very different mm -hmm. um, in that Harmon would the, the book that uh, Susan read um, could not have been written without Harmon because. He was the kind of person who would sit down and think about the past and reminisce a lot. And as I mentioned before, I'm, a, I'm such a futurist that I almost never go to the past. I never think about the past at all. And uh, so Mary Randy, who wrote the book, was asking a lot of questions I couldn't answer. I had no recollection whatsoever. But not only could Harmon remember, playing there he remembered the party afterwards and the names of the people who attended the party that's and, amazing yeah and we would go back to the town again and um and he'd meet these people and remember their names oh, i mean wow. you know i i can't remember names i've never been able to do that i think it's a miracle yeah, i can rem remember amazing. all the music i played but you know yes, um yes. But no, I, in, in answer to your question, I really never think about the past at all. And uh, I, so I don't know whether it's remarkable or not because it just happened. Um, I went to dinner last night with some people and they put, up, uh, put on an old recording of mine. It's the last thing I want to do is to listen to myself play. <laughs> and... Um, and there were pieces on the recording I don't even remember playing. <laughs> I just, yep. and I thought, oh, but I did like the lyrical sound. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. So, I, being... I, in fact, while I was having dinner, I said, maybe at my age, I should listen to my own recordings. <laughs> and <laughs> but enjoy always, it. I've always hated it. I've hated everything I've uh, recorded. I, I just can't stand to listen myself because I hear all the things that are wrong that happens when I listen to myself too yeah 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 so being such a futurist what do you have lying ahead for your future plans do you have things that you're planning and looking forward to well one thing I'm planning to do at some point um I mean finding a pianist now is a little little uh, challenging but I yeah. did line up a pianist wonderful pianist <laughs> the Hindemith Sonata is greatly misunderstood and it's mm -hmm. a really great piece it's one of our important pieces in our bass repertoire yeah. and I 
and but it is so bad it you know there's so many things about it that was it that's wrong the metronomic markings are wrong um and uh and hindemith actually came to the juilliard and conducted us and so i had an opportunity to really sense who the man is and he was very lyrical uh he and uh so that's one of the mistakes in the that uh, is, and I see on YouTube a lot of performances of it, and it just it, it I feel I need to do something. So I thought, first of all, it's very programmatic, mm. um, and I thought I should really uh, maybe have uh, some interesting visuals along with the performance to give to show. Um, my interpretation, the programmatic aspects of it that give people something that they can hang their hat on. And, um, but so that I really wanted, that's one thing I really wanted to do is to. That sounds great because it is, I think it is very, I feel like it's meant to be lyrical, but it gets very choppy and kind of robotic sounding sometimes. And yeah. No, it's it's charming. It's got uh, yeah, humor it's, in it. So much personality. <laughs> a lot of personality, and the last movement is really, really passionate, and yeah. you know, it's uh, sad and full of angst, and you know, mm-hmm. uh, it's just wonderful. I I we, I like to play angst, <laughs> but um, <laughs> no, I uh. No, that that's something that I feel really, really strong about. So I, I'm determined to do that. That's, you know, apart from my studying the jazz piano, that's <laughs> that's on well, my bucket list. I'm looking forward to that. That's great. I think that is something that's needed for that piece and for yeah. all of us, just a re-imar- yeah. reimagining of it or, you know, I yeah. love the visuals idea too. That's great. Yeah. I'm looking forward to your first CD as a jazz pianist as well. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. But <laughs> That'd be so funny. Sorry, up. No, I think for me it's a lot of fun. You know, be be now I can harmonize pieces. You know, we're 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 one line performers. You know, and uh, and even though we hear the harmonies, um, they're to actually harmonize a piece uh, takes a different kind of approach, you know? And so it's been really fun. Yeah, I went online on, I did a Zoom with uh, some of the guys at Berkeley College oh, of cool. Music. That's, <clears throat> I teach there. Oh yeah, I know. <laughs> and so, uh, and they, and Ron Carter and, you know, all these people that are with the school, they, yeah. Um, they said, uh, I told them, I said, I'm studying jazz piano. They said, listen, we have a good gig for you. Are you available? <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> That's it. Oh. <laughs> oh, it broke my heart. I wanted to be at the convention last this past June and I just you know, life sometimes happens. I couldn't get there. And when I saw that you were playing with Steve and Victor, who are, you know, I work with at Berkeley, but they're also dear friends of mine. And I was, oh my gosh, I wanted to be there in person for that. That must've been so magical. And people, people are still talking about it. Such a highlight of the convention. 
I, I find that so unbelievable because I thought I played like shit. <laughs> um, you know, I. But don't you always think that? You're critical of yourself. I'm very critical, but the circumstances, I, you know, first they approached me to do it and I said, absolutely not, you know, because I've given up uh, performing in public for good reason. I don't want to go through all that nervous all that angst before i don't really want to relive any of this um yeah. and uh you know one of the beauties of retiring is that i don't have that stress on my back anymore and mm -hmm. which is really wonderful um and so i said um uh, the only way maybe i if i can find someone who give me a a beta blocker baby <laughs> because, which is something i've never done but i thought I mean, I'm, I don't think I'm going to be able to do something like that. Then I didn't have a bass with me. And so they gave me a bass, which was um, a good sounding instrument, but for me, very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I and so that was against it. And then then I said, isn't there because I have this strange um, feeling about bows, you know, I. I uh, and I, there were a lot of wonderful bows, but none of them I would ever own uh, at the convention because number one, they're too long. I don't like long bows. I don't understand why French bows are short and German bows are long. That never made any sense to me. So I always bought really quite high quality French bows and put a, a German frog on them, ah. you know, and, uh, uh, and so I'm given this bow that was weighed twice as much as it's long and weighed twice as much because I like a light bow too. So I had these, so I'm playing the, you know, I'm, I'm, that's, that's a confrontation I didn't enjoy. And then they had put rosin on the bow and I, and I just find it, uh, you know, I, I guess I, I don't know how many people do this, but I don't like uh, I, any, any of the base rosins I find really problematic for me. Mm -hmm. And so I, I use, uh, I don't like anything that, that sticks to the string. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to dry the hair basically so that mm -hmm. it, it, the bow works. And uh, so I use dry, very dry rosins and that way I can get closer to the bridge and, and do things. Well, in the performance, I even got stuck at one point because there was, I couldn't get a, the rosin. They took, they did everything they could to, to remove the rosin, but there was still too much on there. So that all that was problematic. Anyhow, so I prepared the audience because um, uh, Steve said, uh, Gary, why don't you, we'll play something kind of upbeat like Sunny or something like that. I said, you know, I'm not really not in the mood and, and I'm thinking about this space too. I said, you know, I don't know about that. And um, I said, I'd like to do a ballad with you guys and I'm sure that'll be fun. So uh, I prepared the audience. I said, okay, uh, 60 years ago, I gave recital in Los Angeles, my hometown. <clears throat> and um, afterwards, my mother came backstage and then this woman walked up to the two of us and said, Gary, when you play, you make me cry. And, my, and then she left and my mother said, did you hear that? You better practice a lot more. 
I was going to say, not like the crying with the singing. <laughs> so that, so I got everybody in the, in the mood. And then I said, <laughs> now I'm going to play the shadow of Harmon's smile. Mm. <laughs> and, and people cried. And, oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. yeah I got yeah. emotional too playing it. How could you not? But what a wonderful, yeah. loving tribute. And yeah. for everyone to be able to share in it with you too. Yeah. Yeah, it was really nice. I, I must say, and the the response was wonderful, very embracing, and and was kind of a cathartic for me. It was a great Good. moment. Yeah, nice tribute. Yeah, yeah. it's super. That's great. Yeah. That's so wonderful. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to the next convention. We'll all be there in person and get to see each other. <laughs> I'm going. I would too. miss it. I'm not going to miss it. I don't care what happens. I don't care if I have to walk. I'm getting there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I watched the video. It was good. I really enjoyed that. But it wasn't like you're being there. You know, no, we couldn't ask no. questions. And, I know, you know. I know. So next time, and maybe uh, David and I, are, we have some plans for some more duos and things. So. Oh, yeah, good. 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 So that'll yeah. be something to look forward to. But just to have you here with us today and sharing some stories, it's such a, a treasure. And thank you for taking time out of your life to, to share with us. It's just, I feel so blessed to, to be able to do this. It's really nice. Well, you know, thank you for that. You know. That's really sweet. <clears throat> and I have to get into the garden, I tell you. We've been having very warm weather for Victoria, nothing compared to the rest of the world, but yeah. um, I mean, it's not hot here, but it's it's unusually dry. We haven't had rain for 18 days, so oh, wow. um, yeah, so I'm doing a lot of watering and mm. uh, gardening is uh, second to the base. Gardening is my next passion. Oh, that's nice. And, and then the next to that is my trains. <laughs> oh, I love trains. <laughs> I, I love trains and I have them in the garden. I have five trains running around oh, wow. beds in the garden. Oh, beautiful. And, and then the other thing I love is uh, clocks and watches. So, you know, I, I, I'm making up for a lot of lost time because I always, I'm, I ha I'm a mechanical idiot and I really want to learn all about this so i'm learning how to how a clock operates and take it apart That's put so it nice. get the, together again and do all, do all these they learn how to work a lathe and things wow. like that so i you know yeah That's i great. my parents would never oh no you can't do that you're going to hurt your hands you know right. so yeah yeah that's well, one of the problems of growing in a musical family right yes i wanted to play volleyball but you know, oh, it's going to hurt your fingers. So I didn't. And, yeah. It's amazing that my father, you know, he put up with me, but my father was an athlete. I mean, he, he wanted to, there, there's a great baseball team here called the Cardinals. Yes. And he was, he was offered a contract. Uh, this is probably in the 1930s. Mm. And uh, he was the last born in a family of eight children and he had to support his mother and they didn't oh, pay enough. Not then. Now they so would. So he could, he couldn't. And so, so did he follow his, baseball when you were a kid? Did he keep watching it? No, I I don't like sports. You know, that's what my my, my problem. My father, <laughs> I was the biggest disappointment ever because I was a fat kid, 
and nobody <laughs> wanted me on their team and uh and I was very unathletic and um and so my father you know was disappointed to say the least <laughs> well it's you know you didn't have that common bond because he was in sports land so yeah but I'm sure but he supported he supported my musical endeavor for sure yeah, I'm, I'm sure yeah. you meet him proud in his own way even yeah. if he scratched his head and said I said baseball not bass yeah <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was surrounded by bass bass players as a kid because my grandfather played and my uncle played and my cousin played, and my father, in desperation, uh, studied the bass. Oh wow! During okay. the war, so he played in USO bands. Perfect. You know, and yeah, I remember yeah. it, his, you know, playing pizzicato was a big problem. <laughs> it hurt his fingers, you know, and I, oh. and, and you know what he used to do? I mean, it's, you know, I'm thinking about it. It's probably the most dangerous thing you could do, but he put embalming fluid on his fingers to harden them up. Yes. Harden them up. My brother-in-law's dad um, had friends that were, they were Polish and they had friends in a polka band. And when I first met him, he said, oh, you play bass. I've got embalming fluid you could use for your fingers so that you don't get calluses. And I thought, oh, dear God, no. <laughs> but yeah. it was in the polka bands around the Boston area. That's what the guys did with their bass playing fingers. Oh, yeah. We did, you know, horrible things. I, I remember <laughs> um, going to the pharmacist and buying xylene, you know, which is uh, if you inhale it, it's, it's carcinogenic. It's terrible. Um, and that's how we cleaned our instruments. And oh, yeah, wow, yeah, happy memories. And I really, and we did all weird things. I mean, um, I played on gut strings uh, most of my youth, and uh, and uh, I always had um, a a nut. Uh, what do you call it? Um, it had oils in it. Oh, the for biggest. the oil. Yeah. yeah, and always had that nut on my stand, and um, and then I after every practice session, uh, I wiped all the strings with the nut to put the oil back in. Oh wow! You know, otherwise they would unravel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, gut strings are a whole other beast. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's amazing. The stories, though. Oh, I could do this all day. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was when I was reading your book, I was noticing that you and I have some similarities. Um, my grandfather was a shoemaker. Oh, no really, kidding. Yes. Yeah. And I came from a musical family, but my grandfather was also a saxophone player in a dance band. And um, it was, you know, there was music on both sides of my family. But also, this is a little bit of a, a couple of funny little things. So I grew up in Boston and I'm still in Boston. You had a high school music director, Dr. Mari Lefkowitz, I think was his That's name. That's right, yeah. His son, Ronan, is a friend of mine. He's in the Boston Symphony, and I'm there, when, you know, a first call sub there. So I see him all the time. I thought, I saw the name. I was like, Lefkowitz? No way. And I looked it up. I was like, oh, they're related. <laughs> and um, when I was learning pizzicato, you said something in the book about watching your sister Arla play on the harp. Mm -hmm. I had studied Ann Hobson Pilot, who was the harp player in the Boston Symphony when I was a kid. Oh. And I watched her pizzicato and I thought, it sounds so, oh my gosh, her playing was so rich and full. And so I tried to emulate that 
on the base. Um, and I thought, I read that and I, I thought, it's the first person that I ever heard of that didn't say, that's weird. You did it too. <laughs> and it just, Isn't that it made me, yeah, it made me feel very cool. <laughs> I love I uh, watched my sister and and uh, and it did influence my pizzicato playing. And the other thing, other thing that into influenced my pizzicato playing, and I asked asked him a lot of questions. It was a great guitarist named Segovia. Oh and, yes. And he was uh, when my first jobs out of out of Juilliard was at the uh, North Carolina School of the Arts, oh, sure. and he was on the faculty, and wow. um, so. I watched him play very closely and I saw he got this warm, rich sound on the guitar and it rang for a long time. And I asked him, how do you do that? Mm -hmm. And he said, you move the, your, your move, move your finger very across the string slowly mm -hmm. and you give as slow a release as possible so that it'll ring. Nice. So I tried that on the bass. It works great with the thumb because yeah. you have more space on your thumb to, right. to move across. And you can get this long sustaining pizzicato if you do that. Segovia oh, style. That's great. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> that's so much fun. So yeah, I've started to feel like I I have things in common with Gary Carr. It just felt so neat. <laughs> <laughs> but it's exciting. And I, I just want to thank you, I, I and David too, for for joining us today. Um maybe we'll have you back. <laughs> more stories <laughs> yes i love the stories the, because the stories when you tell them it just brings everything to life so so beautifully it's it's really really fun to hear in your own words and the the way your voice is expressive with it all yeah. it's just super it's kind exciting. of fun you know i mean um maybe i'll turn into wilford joseph's because again i you know when i in order to tell stories you have to recall the past which is mm. And uh, but lately I've been meeting with friends and they'll say something about, um, oh, they'll say South Africa or, or they'll say something about and then I'll say, oh, I have a story about that. <laughs> and then I recall it. And, and oh, so great. I started telling I, I, you know, I think it's a new phase of my life telling stories. So mm -hmm. I have a lot of fun. Yeah, it's, it's nice great. to recall these things. And and um and I'm dipping into a part of my brain that I never did before by right. reminiscing and telling stories. Yeah, right, this is right. love. Yeah, but our whole wonderful. lives are made up of memories. Isn't it? Nice. Yeah. yeah, it's nice to recall them. I, I've just left uh, Wells Cathedral School. I was there 26 years. Um, oh and my! Gone so quickly, and I'm just posting photographs of concerts we did and and uh, posters and things. And I'm reliving them as I'm posting them on, on Facebook. And it's such a nice, these are such nice memories. And you suddenly, re, you remember things which you'd forgotten. One thing will, will jog something else. And I, I think it's nice to reminisce. I think, I don't think you have to live in the past. I think that's wrong. Yeah. I think you have to live in the present and plan for the future. But it's nice to dip it. I, for me, I enjoy yeah. dipping in the past. And it, that's what's been nice today about listening to some of your past directly from you yeah. well yeah. thank you for that yeah well i have to do more reminiscing then yeah i think so guys. excellent <laughs> <laughs> well i don't want to keep you from your garden too long although what do you grow in your garden you know i was just thinking um you know in reading the book my 
my mother, when she met my father, uh, was introduced to her as Joe Carr. My father was a fraternal twin and, uh, and his sister was Mary. And so on my father's uh, birth certificate, it's Joe, not Joseph, because in a Jewish family to have twins named Joseph and Mary, I think is a little oh, bit odd. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Oh my gosh, so, yes. <laughs> and so, um, and but that wasn't his name. And it was a name that was given to him because I, he worked on Car Street in St. Louis. And uh, and he was a humorous guy, as they called him, Joker, Joe Carr, you know. So, um, and my mother didn't like his name. The name was Kornbleet, um, okay. which is like cornflower in German. Sure. Uh, and uh, so he, so she had to change. I think I was four years old. My sister was two, and oh, they wow. changed. And she changed the name to Carr, make it official. Oh, um, wow. But so. In the garden, I keep there's a flower that keeps popping up all over the place, and I cannot get rid of it. It's almost like a weed, but it's quite beautiful. Mm. It's purple, and which is my favorite color, and um, and it's and it it is a nice addition to the garden. Even though I have other things I want to put there, but it still creeps in. And guess what it is? Is it a cornflower? A cornflower. <laughs> That's really special. That's something you just can't pull out. I never planted it. That's I mean, amazing. Just yeah. It's just meant to be there. It's meant, it's so meant they, to be there. Yep. <laughs> meant yep. to be re remind me of my past. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, that's your dad saying he loves you and he's proud of you, I think. I hope so. That's yeah, how I would I, interpret it. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's so cool. Well, that might be just the perfect story to wrap up with today, but that kind of brought tears to my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Well, thank you to the incredible, wonderful, amazing Gary Carr for joining us today on Base Talk with Hagen and Hayes. What a special episode and a true treat. And I really do hope that you'll come back and share more stories with us. <laughs> I'll I'll dig them up un Wonderful. until then. Oh, <laughs> it has you. been a lot of fun for me to be with both you and David. It's great. Thank, thank you, you so for much, inviting guys. me. Thank nice you for, you for joining us. Thank this is so wonderful. Nice to see you both. <laughs> thank you. <Great. laughs>